This is Dennis Raimundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Data. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, Dr. David R. Loy. He is uh, an academician. He has a tremendous academic background, retired from teaching now, uh, and is also a Zen teacher. He's widely published uh, in addition to his uh, work in, uh, in Zen, uh, or his teaching, uh, being a Zen teacher, he has a deep commitment to environmental issues. Uh, thank you so very much, David, for taking the time to come on with us today. Well, thank you, uh, Dennis and Phil, for this invitation, this opportunity. Uh, David, um, we have a lot to talk about. You've been <laughs> in the world of spirituality as a practitioner, as a teacher, and a uh, scholar for many years. Uh, you've written books. You've got about uh, 10,000 magazine articles and journal <laughs> articles. And um, But let's begin... Uh, going back a bit in the past, and let us know what brought you to your spiritual path and why uh, the emphasis on, or how did it, the emphasis on Buddhism and, and Zen in particular come about? Mm, sure. Well, uh, uh, I'm another child of the 60s. In, in my case, late 60s. I graduated from college in 69, and at that time, of course, the Vietnam War was still raging, and I, I became a draft resistor, moved out to the Bay Area, and, and worked in the draft resistance movement, and uh, expected to go to prison for that. But in the end, the, um, the, the system was changed. Uh, they came in with a lottery. Selective mm -hmm. Service came in with a lottery. And so, in the end, I was never actually drafted or, or attempted to be drafted. But in the process, I also began to realize that it... it something was missing in my dissatisfaction with the establishment, that there was some personal or individual dimension that I really needed to work on myself, as well as the, um, the, the kind of political system that we had at the time. So after that, I, I dropped out, and uh, I uh, ended up in Hawaii, which was originally going to be the first stop of a round-the-world trip. But uh, I actually ended up living there for about five years, and that's where I became involved in Zen, um, which, of course, was, was quite popular at, at the time. Uh, fortunately, there was a Zen group there run by uh, Robert Aiken, who later became mm. a very well-known teacher. And uh, uh, his teacher, Yamada Cohen, used to visit regularly from Japan, so that was also the beginning of my practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask, David, uh, we have many people on the show. Some are academics, some are practitioners. In your case, you're both. You've, you've studied Zen very deeply. You've written extensively about it. And, and I guess a person could do that without being a practitioner. But you are a practitioner and a Zen teacher. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the distinction between the two. And I guess the question I'm curious about is, could your Zen practice, does your Zen practice benefit from your academic work and, and writings about Zen, or are they two separate things? Uh, for sure, they're very much connect, connected. In, in fact, to some degree, I, I would say it's the opposite as well. That mm -hmm. uh, I ended up going back to university and getting a master's degree in Asian philosophy only after I'd lived in, in a couple Zen centers and you know practiced quite intensively. And, and this sort of piqued my 
my uh, interest in, in academia again in that I, I wanted to find out more about the, the Asian non-dualist traditions, not only Zen and Buddhism, but Vedanta and Taoism, for example, be, just because of the, the, the kind of experiences that I was happen, ha having, uh, I was wanting to know more about how the different traditions uh, understood and, and explained them. So for me, I felt very fortunate that the two have definitely gone together, that my Zen practice has helped me uh, understand the, the, the sort of things that I'm talking about. But also it's true, as you say, that I think the academic perspective uh, has sort of given me a different, somewhat different approach to the Zen practice as well. If I could ask how, a follow-up follow yeah, question real quickly. Uh, you mentioned that... Uh, uh, you, you wanted to study more based upon experiences you were having in your practice. What were some of those experiences? <laughs> well, those are, those are uh, obviously not, not so easy to describe, mm -hmm. are they? There's always a certain ineffability to them. But, mm -hmm. but one way that I have tried to talk about them is in, is in terms of non-duality, that it felt like there were times when the, the sense of separation between a me inside and an objective world outside, that that disappeared or, or evaporated. And it seemed to me that there was something quite revelatory and important going on when that happened. So I was very interested, especially in the early days, in sort of looking at this concept of subject-object non-duality and looking at how the different traditions, uh, as I said, not only Buddhism, but uh, Advaita Vedanta and Taoism, what they had to say about that. You know, David, I, I was perusing <clears throat> your uh, CV, and there's a long list of uh, articles and essays, and I highlighted some of the titles that uh, leaped out at me, uh, partly because I, I'm a sucker for clever titles, and <laughs> but also some of the uh, subject matter, and one of them uh, is relevant to what you just said. Uh, it's it's quite an old piece of yours, but it's titled "How Many Non Dualities Are There?" <laughs> so so my question is, um, how can there be more than one? Is one que obvious question, but the hmm. other is, um, uh, what was the point of that? And did you ever get an accurate count? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the word non duality it it simply means not two, doesn't it? Yeah. So I mm -hmm. mean, in in general. You can say <laughs> so that it could be three. No, yeah, not not two, but <laughs> well, less no. than three. Yeah. <laughs> well, then it would be non-triality or yeah. non-trinity yeah, or something right, like that, right? right. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> so normally the concept is is just a denial that two things we normally think of as separate from each other are are really separate. It turns out that they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, so so this can mean a number of different things, uh, or or I should say, it does mean a number of different things. Uh, one important example is non-duality of what we might call bipolar concepts, things like um, big, small, success, failure, good and evil. You know, we, we normally think of those as two separate concepts, but when you really start to think about them, um, you realize that if you don't understand what the word big means, you don't really know what small means. They're really two sides of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this is important not only logically but psychologically because sometimes we we get uh, in a situation where we want one half of the duality and we want to avoid the other half and and it doesn't work like that. For example, uh, if if the most important thing for you is to live a pure life, whatever that means, 
uh, it means that you're also going to have to be preoccupied with impurity, with avoiding impurity. It involves distinguishing every situation that we're in and asking, is this a pure act? Is this an impure act? And, 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 and that becomes a kind of trap for the mind, which is why I think Kui Hai, one of the great uh, Chan or Zen masters, said that true purity is to live beyond the duality of purity and impurity. So that's one small example. Um, there's lots of other examples. In Buddhism, for example, in, in early Buddhism, there's a very strong distinction between samsara, this world of uh, suffering, craving, delusion, and nibbana or nirvana. But then somebody like Nagarjuna, the Mahayana philosopher, comes along and says, well, no, those aren't really two separate realities or dimensions. They're simply, you know, two, the sphere or, or the place, what he calls koti. They're not two separate places. It's pretty clear that they're two different ways of experiencing this reality right here and now. So those are two small examples, mm -hmm. but the ones that are most fascinating to me mm -hmm. is, is, again, subject-object non-duality where the sense of self becomes one with, with the object. And, and, and this applies, well, for example, sometimes this happens, I think, with music. I think many of us have a little taste of this when maybe we forget ourselves and we become one with the music. Or in terms of uh, uh, our bodies or our physical activities, I think uh, the Taoist paradox of Wei Wu Wei, the action of non-action, I think this is something that athletes sometimes experience when they really get in the you know, get in the groove or in the zone. And likewise, I think non-dual thinking is something that uh, many of us have some taste of uh, be because I think that's really what's referred to by creativity, true creativity, as so many really creative mm -hmm. people say. It's, it's not that they somehow create the thoughts, but the thoughts sort of spring up non-dually. So all of these are examples that could be elaborated in great detail about what non-duality uh, means in different traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, David, uh, in regard to uh, non-duality, and this is an issue we've discussed with others and one I, I really struggle with, uh, is there a, an ultimate, do you believe, goal where non, it, it, the non-duality is permanent? permanent? The, the experience you had, say, someone might have with music or whatever else that is, is, is uh, experienced with the sense, senses that you become one with that, there's a lack of separation. It is the ultimate goal then in Buddhism, <clears throat> in whatever tradition uh, that, that deals with non-duality, to, uh, to come to a final goal where one sort of lives that non-duality 24-7. Uh, mm. <laughs> or, or is the goal rather realizing the non-duality of duality and non-duality? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I lie in bed at night thinking about, actually. <laughs> well, I mean... <clears throat> It, it sounds funny, but I, but I think that's right in the sense that, uh, you know, early, early on the path, you could say that, uh, well, we go on the path because we suffer mm -hmm. and we suffer usually because we're stuck identifying with some, some forms, you might say, some, something in the world. And so uh, it's, it's important, I think, to, to let go of this and to have some taste of non-duality, but it, it's not... It's not as though I think that's the ultimate goal, simply to reside in 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 that what what Buddhism might call uh, emptiness or or shunyata. Rather, mm -hmm. it's it's I think uh, practicing and living in such a way that those two dimensions become more and more interfused with each other. 
so so that one isn't simply rejecting one dimension for the other, but somehow being comfortable, uh, sort of spontaneously, flexibly, according to situation, sort of turning from one to the other and ultimately realizing more and more as we live that, that they're not really two, two separate ways of experiencing it all, but, but, but that they really become unified. Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of but, uh, sense. <clears throat> mm -hmm. David, <clears throat> David um, mm -hmm. Dennis asked you earlier about the interplay between your, um, your life as a practitioner and teacher and your uh, academic career. I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. We've had, and I know personally, many academics who are also practitioners. Mm -hmm. And I know that, especially in, in the fields of uh, Hindu and Buddhist studies, um, there's often, um, on the part of scholars, a, a, a suspicion of people who are also practitioners and especially uh, teachers, that they would not have the um, requisite academic uh, objectivity. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, the practitioners among them say, but without the uh, living the life or having certain set of experiences, you can't possibly understand just by uh, analyzing texts and so forth. Have mm -hmm. you run into that and... Um, um, did you have you run into it on the other side as well, where mm. people say, um, "Excuse me, but you know we're Buddhists and we know that the finger pointing to the moon uh, mm. is not the moon, and right. you're busy pointing your finger and all this academic stuff." Have mm. you? What is your take on all that? It's very interesting that you highlight that because uh, I'm. That's something that I've experienced on both sides. Um, uh -huh. I mean, it's it it's not uh, it's not as though I myself have ever sort of uh, minimized or or denied the fact that I'm a, a Buddhist practitioner. Uh, but it is interesting that there are a great number of of academics who who do deny that. Uh, they they really feel not simply that it's uh, something that might compromise their objectivity in the eyes of others but I also think they but also suspect that they think it may be affect their chances for promotions and, yeah. and, and academic success in, uh, in other ways for sure yeah um, on, and on the other side what you see of course is is a fair amount of, of what frankly I, I would call a kind of anti-intellectualism mm. certainly in Zen to be honest I mean it's clear that Zen practice is is non-intellectual for the most part. It, it, it tends not to have the study dimension that something like a Lokpa Tibetan Buddhism would have. But it's definitely true that there's this time, or that there there's somewhat of a tendency for that non-intellectualism to shade off into a kind of uh, uh, anti-intellectualism, mm -hmm. which I think is very unfortunate because ultimately the path we're on is, is not about getting rid of thinking or getting rid of concepts, but but rather learning to think, I think, in a deeper, more creative, more non-dual way. In other words, we shouldn't we shouldn't blame the victims in the sense of, uh, well, I'm thinking of something Dogen said, Eihei Dogen, the great Japanese Zen master, uh, in, in one of his fascicles in the Shobogenzo, he says something like, uh, the the goal isn't to get rid of concepts, but to liberate concepts. Mm. Um, 
so that again we can think mm-hmm. more deeply rather than being <laughs> you know tra- trapped by them so the problem isn't concepts themselves but the way that we normally uh, get enmeshed in them mm-hmm. uh, D- david you i you've taught uh uh, been a professor in, in Singapore, in Japan, in 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 South uh, in South Africa, in in Israel, in the Netherlands. Uh, you've been in many parts of the world. Does Buddhism uh, uh, take on different uh, uh, flavors in, in these different countries? And 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 especially, how does American Buddhism is it unique in any way? Is it different? And has it changed much from the '70s until now? Hmm. Well. I mean, the first thing to realize is that, I mean, Buddhism has built within it a, a tendency to transform. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Buddha emphasized impermanence and insubstantiality, and and that applies to Buddhism itself. So every time Buddhism has gone to a, a new culture, it, it really hasn't just imposed itself, but it's tended to interact with the local culture and, and, and be transformed thereby. You know, f- for example, the practice that I do, Zen or Chan Buddhism, the Buddha didn't teach that, but it, rather it's the kind of Buddhism that developed in China originally when Mahayana Buddhism interacted with the Chinese Taoism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- the really fascinating issue now is, you know, how is Buddhism changing as it comes to the modern world, which is certainly the greatest uh, challenge that is ever faced in the sense that the modern world is not simply uh, uh, so technological and and um, and so so secular, but also it, it, to be quite honest, it, it's a world in crisis. and 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 one of the really important issues, therefore, is you know what what does Buddhism have to offer that can help us understand and respond to these? To these crises, I mean, Buddhism is changing in a number of ways. Um, uh, f- first of all, psychologically, I think that's probably been the main way so far. Mm-hmm. Over the last generation, you know, we now have a large number of uh, therapists, trained therapists, who are also Buddhist practitioners, and in some cases, also uh, teachers, uh, mm-hmm. authorized teachers within their own traditions. Uh, so there's been a kind of psychologization of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in addition to that, uh, a number of people have noted what's sometimes called a feminization of Buddhism in the mm-hmm. sense that mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly more than half the people engaged in serious Buddhist practice are, uh, are, are women. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I offer workshops and retreats, it's rare that it's less than two-thirds, which is, you know, quite... Quite mm-hmm. interesting, if you think about it. Yeah. And then finally, the biggest thing, of course, is uh, um, Buddhism, which in, in its own Asian environment never emphasized social justice. Mm-hmm. Now it comes into a context where that's a, a really important issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I- issues of, um, well, obvious ones, uh, racism, uh, growing gap between rich and poor, and, of course, the increasingly... Um, grave e- ecological crisis that, that we now face. Mm-hmm. David, um, it's very interesting because uh, I'm, more of my time uh, is spent in the uh, sort of Hindu equivalent uh, mm-hmm. and the, the yoga world and the same trends you, you will observe there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote about the feminization of, mm-hmm. of the, these teachings and so forth. So it's, I think there's a parallel probably because uh, there's mm-hmm. a similar 
a demographic. You know, some people find their way to yogic things and others to Buddhism. Um, but I, and I think we want to pursue a little bit more uh, how Buddhism can inform these uh, grave social issues. Um, but I'm also, uh, before that, I want to uh, ask you something. It's another uh, article title of yours, and which is, and it's the reverse. It's why Buddhism needs the West. <laughs> and uh, I'm very curious about what you meant by that and what your, what your uh, conclusions are. Uh, if it's the article I'm thinking of, it's probably why Buddhism and the West need each other. No, it's well. It just says why Buddhism needs the West. It was in, tricycle. In, interesting. Yeah. In, in, in tricycle. Okay. Um, well, ba basically, the argument that I usually make is, and and I'm afraid I don't recall that that specific one, uh -huh. is that as as I said, the the emphasis in the uh, Western tradition, you know, Western civilization, which traces itself largely back to to the Greeks and to the, uh, the Hebrews. Um, the, the emphasis there has, has been social justice, especially in the modern world. The idea that we can restructure our societies so they are more socially just. And, and clearly, we have a long way to go, but also an awful lot's been accomplished in the last couple hundred years, if you think about it. Um, and yet there's still this oddity that in some ways we seem to be moving backwards. If you look, for mm -hmm. example, at the growing gap between rich and poor. So we, you know, we, we may wonder what's going on there. And then on the other side, you know, Buddhism, for I think a number of historical reasons, the focus in Buddhism hasn't been on social transformation or what we might call social dukkha, social social justice, social suffering, it's very much been on the individual level, the idea that through our own meditative practice we can come to realize something about our own true nature that will, you know, liberate us from certain types of suffering. And and so the basic point, I think, is that we're, we're at a time now where not only do those two traditions sort of come together, we know so much more about each of them, but it's also a situation where we need both. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that you know so, social transformation without individual transformation. I think we can see the problems that that arise from that. That uh, um, I mean, if you think about uh, how how how's the best way to express this? Um, if if people haven't worked on themselves, there's always going to be this tendency to sort of take advantage of one's situation. Uh, Buddhism talks a lot about the three poisons of greed, ill will, delusion. I mean, if you're, for example, a revolutionary leader who who overthrows a really nasty dictator, and now you have sort of ultimate supreme power, if you haven't worked on your own greed, it's going right. to be very difficult not to take advantage of that situation. Mm -hmm. If you haven't worked on your own ill will, it's 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 going to be hard not to see people who have different ideas as enemies. And to be eliminated or controlled, and if you, and if you don't really have some, some sense of your own ego, and and how that gets in the way, the tendency is going to be to sort of understand the solution to all problems as just imposing your ideas on everybody else, and, and I think we see that now. I, I think that helps us understand why so often revolutions have, even when they've been well intended, mm -hmm. they end up just replacing one gang of thugs with another. Right. So we can mm -hmm. see it on that side, and it works on the other side as well. I think that 
interestingly, if you go back and really sort of read the Pali Canon, the earliest text, very carefully, I think the Buddha was a lot more progressive than the institution that developed after he died. I think it, it, clo- it clearly shows a great sensitivity to the situation of women, uh, which in its, co- in its historical context was huge. And also his attitude toward caste, he was very critical and, um, you know, he, he conceived of the Sangha that he created as a casteless organization where people lost their caste when they joined. So, in, mm. as I said, I think he was very progressive, but historically, the way the institution evolved was that um, the, in, in order to survive and thrive, it had to come to some kind of accommodation with the state. And uh, and the karma teaching in particular, I think, lends itself to that. It it, it encourages a kind of social acceptance. If mm-hmm. somebody's born a king, or a prince, and will become a king, then he obviously deserves that. If you're born poor, uh, disabled in some way, well, you know, don't blame anybody else except yourself. So the karma teaching, I think, mm-hmm. could 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 contribute to this sort of rather narrow preoccupation with one's own individual karma. Mm-hmm individual suffering, individual delusion, and so forth. But, you know, the, the positive side of that is that Buddhism has created what's very likely the world's greatest collection of contemplative practices that can help us transform ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's just that it hasn't, up to this point, had much to say about social transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, uh, in 2014, you received an honorary uh, doctorate from Carleton College, your alma mater. Uh, shortly thereafter... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you, you returned in 2016 that honorary degree to the college to protest the decision of the board uh, not to divest from fossil fuel companies. Tell us about that. And I know you're deeply committed to uh, environmental issues. Is that something that uh, 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 was inspired as a Buddhist? Or uh, how did you come to that? And how can Buddhism help deal with uh, our environmental crisis? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, what happened originally is I was uh, uh, awarded the, the honorary degree uh, in, in appreciation of my contribution to sort of Buddhist studies and especially uh, sort of the, the, the relevance or, or the social implications of, of Buddhist teachings. Uh, but but I, could, I couldn't help notice that the, uh, the Carleton College, as much as I appreciate it and my my training there, that there was still a problem with the board of trustees mm-hmm. that they that they have in fact been quite resistant to divesting. I mean, it, it's not the case that Carlton has has a lot of money directly invested in fossil fuels, but I also think it's a really important symbolic gesture uh, to sort right. of uh, you know shift from mm-hmm. something like fossil fuels to to more renewable sources of energy. So so that was one way to protest it as as part of a larger movement that's going on there. Of, of students, alumni, and uh, some faculty and staff as well, uh, which is one of the main uh, thrusts of 350.org, by the way, uh, you know, helping or encouraging institutions such as colleges and churches to divest from, mm-hmm. from fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. What was the other part of your question? Uh, how do you, do you see Zen Buddhism? It, two things. Mm. Uh, it, it was was the practice of Zen Buddhism that you're involved in uh, instrumental in you becoming as strong an environmentalist as you are? And uh, are there tools, are there procedures, are there teachings within Zen uh, that uh, would help those 
uh, that, and it should be everybody, but those that are concerned about uh, the, the, the uh, uh, future of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I, I don't talk so much about Zen in the environment, but, but I sort of generalize about Buddhism in general. I mean, the philosophy of Zen is, is largely Mahayana Buddhism. So in general, uh, I wouldn't want to you know, focus too narrowly on Zen because I think there's also so much uh, more available in, in the larger tradition. Um, but maybe I can answer your question indirectly by looking at um, th- this new developing field of, of eco-dharma. Um, hmm. You know, the word dharma, as you know, is, is important in mm-hmm. Hinduism as well as Buddhism. Um, but a- as understood in Buddhism, it's really looking at the, um, the sort of link between traditional Asian Buddhism or Buddhism as, as it's developed up to this point and the kind of ecological crisis that, that we're facing right now. It's a new term, and I think we're still sort of giving it content, but for me, uh, three things stand out. Uh, one of them is, first of all, meditation in the natural world, and mm-hmm. this is something that's been very important to me for a while. In the last few years, I've been co-leading wilderness retreats with uh, another teacher here in the Boulder area, uh, Johan Robbins. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And it's quite interesting if you think about it, like just in terms of the traditional life of the Buddha, the the kind of story that we're all familiar with, um, he really had this thing for nature, especially trees. He was not only born in the Lumbini Grove when his mother went into early labor, but, you know, when you think of him leaving home, uh, where did he go? He went out into the forest. That's where he studied. That's where he meditated. He became enlightened under a tree. And thereafter, he largely lived, taught, and then died out in the natural world. And it's interesting that um, this this applies not only to the Buddha, but if you think about somebody like Jesus, after mm-hmm. he was baptized by John the Baptist, he he went out into the wilderness for 40 mm-hmm. days and 40 mm-hmm. nights. And Muhammad had his cave. You know, what's going on here? Is there something about the natural world that, that can really uh, open us up or, or, or help us let go? And I think mm-hmm. there is. I think that when we only meditate in, in urban or, or, or buildings, uh, there's obviously some advantages in terms of uh, temperature control, screens to, keep, <laughs> screens to keep out insects and so forth. But I also think something is lost, you know, right. in the sure. sense that um, when we're out in the natural world, we're, we're opening up to living organic things. Out in the natural world, we're not in an urban environment where basically everything is a collection of, of utensils for us to use one way or the other. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, it can open up other possibilities there. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say it's necessary, but I think it, it, it can definitely contribute something and, so and make we, us uh, appreciate that, that world more. Sorry, go ahead. So we we should all have a an air-conditioned screened cabin in the woods. <laughs> well, <laughs> Combine the best of both. Exactly. But I have a question, uh, David. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. With your uh, passionate uh, activism and your uh, equal passion for the mm-hmm. inner life as expressed uh, particularly through Buddhism, do you ever run into resistance 
in uh, the Buddhist community uh, to the uh, social activism? Is there any sense that uh, this is this is not what a uh, uh, teacher of Buddhism should be doing? That uh, for sure. Uh, mm. But let me just say two more quick things about eco dharma, if I mm. may. Yeah. Um, this because the other thing that I would add, first of all, is. Uh, Ecodharma is about uh, looking at Buddhist, and I think we can add Hindu teachers' teachings. Of, you know, what do they have to say about the natural world, mm-hmm. uh, and and what do they therefore imply about how we respond to the ecological crisis? And and then thirdly, I I think it's also f- for Buddhism, we we have this uh, concept of the bodhisattva, someone who wants to become awakened not just for themselves, but to help everyone else as well. And, and I think a very important part of eco-dharma is um, uh, what some people are now calling the eco-sattva. Uh, uh, in, a, in other words, understanding the path is not simply sort of meditating for your own awakening, for your own peace of mind, but also realizing that it's important to mm-hmm. uh, use that as a kind of a basis to go out and then engage um, mm. in, in a kind of non-attached spirit. Mm-hmm. So, so these for me are the three aspects of uh, eco dharma, and one one could say a lot more about them. But you're you're certainly right that that there is a or or there has been a fair amount of resistance to this within the Buddhist world. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I would say until three or four years ago, uh, I was quite surprised by not so much the resistance, but the the, the indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was offering a number of uh, workshops, for example, on Buddhism and social issues and ecological issues, and especially ecologically, people just weren't signing up. Hmm. Um, and and I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that, but I but I think the main one has to do with the fact that there are aspects of Buddhism, as we find in many other spiritual traditions, that that tend to dualize between this world and some other yeah. higher world, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the encouragement is not to sort of engage with this world, but to s- escape or transcendent. And, and people, right. therefore, think that e- ecological or social engagement is, is really not the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Da- David, thank you so much for your time today. Phil, do you have any uh, final questions yes, or points? Yeah. I have one one question, and I know it's a loaded one, but maybe David, <laughs> David <laughs> We saved those for last, maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe he could answer it uh, concisely. Um, it, you, we alluded to Buddhism adapting to different environments and now to this crazy uh, Western modern world. Do you are you ever concerned that the forms of adaptation can dilute um, or distort in any way the teachings? And I have in mind some, you know, mm-hmm. the the in, incredible sudden uh, secularization and and popularity of mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your take on it? Good question. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's interesting. Of course, there's something comparable to that in the. Uh, in the yoga tradition, Absolutely. isn't there? Yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. for sure. Yes, I mean, it, it's a complicated issue. You know, there was a time when I started Zen practice when I was so excited, I thought this was the solution and, you know, everyone's going to want to do this. And, and when you realize at a certain point that, that everyone isn't going to want to do this, 
it, it raises this larger issue of, okay, how can traditions like Buddhism impact the modern world, which is so is is so different, uh, and and so to a large extent, I I'm I'm quite sympathetic to to the mindfulness movement, um, especially when it comes to health issues and 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 educational. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it becomes rather more problematical when you look at its role in the business world, um, mm. because it 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 can basically be used to sort of help employees adapt to a difficult situation, rather than encouraging the kind of larger economic transformations that I think are called mm. for. In other words, sometimes boot, uh, employees are overburdened with very stressful jobs. They just have too much work to do, and rather than reduce their workload, you can you can see that sometimes corporations will uh, I- encourage the courses, mindfulness courses, to help them cope better. Well, I'm not sure that's the best uh, mm-hmm. solution uh, uh. to the problem, and I'm not sure that that's what mindfulness is for. At the mm. same time, uh, you know, mindfulness can be a kind of a wedge or, or a kind of a Trojan horse in the sense that, you know, when people start doing mindfulness, they don't necessarily understand or or know how that's going to uh, change them. Um, so f- I think for many people, it would offer a kind of opening that they otherwise wouldn't be uh, available to. Does does this lose something? Well, for sure, in the sense that I think the Buddhist path uh, has so much more to offer. But given given the practicalities of, of the kind of world that we're in, I mean, I I see that as as an important or or potentially very important sort of opening that will hopefully, you know, in in the long run tend to bring in these larger uh, concerns. So for example, within the mindfulness movement, there there's already a a a sub movement of people who are very concerned about social issues mm-hmm. and are, and are concerned about how to try to integrate mm-hmm. those. So. So I see that as a as a positive thing. Great. Yeah, Very David. Good. David, I, I, I thought of one last question. I I have to ask, and that is, can one be an agnostic and a Buddhist at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is not a joke or a punchline. It's a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you have to be, mm-hmm. in the sense that, well, for example, just thinking about Zen practice, right? I mean, in in Zen. We we talk a lot about Kensho or enlightenment or you know first opening up, um, but that kind of awakening it's not as though now you understand everything. I mean, awakening opens us up to a a a, a mysterious world where we don't really know. Um, uh, one of my teachers, Robert Aiken, put it very well when he sent uh, when he said. Um, our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. So, mm-hmm. in in the literal sense of agnostic, not knowing, I think that's a very important part of the path. We we do what we need to do, as well as we understand our situation. But nonetheless, there's we the path is about opening up to a kind of f- fundamental mystery where we really don't know. Great answer. Uh, Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us uh, uh, today. Wonderful. My my pleasure. I I hope some of that will be of uh, some interest to 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 some of the people who listen in. But thank you very much for this invitation.
It was our pleasure, and we hope to have you back sometime. And absolutely, um, we'll um, look forward to seeing how things work out uh, with um, Echo Dharma. And mm, thank you. One, and, one sorry, one <clears throat> one thing I forgot to mention is, and maybe this would be the topic for next time is. Uh, uh, we, I'm one of the founders of a new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center uh, up in the mountains mm. near Boulder, and uh, that's something that might be worth talking about uh, in a, in a future interview. And, and we'll make Very sure that uh, information about that is posted on our uh, Thank podcast you. site. Yeah, great. <clears throat> great. Thank you so much. Thanks again, David. Keep up the good work. <laughs> you, you guys too. Thank you. Bye bye.